0: Anybody here between 15 and 20? I know we've lost the best part of the congregation, they've just left, but anybody else here between 15 and 20? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, this is a, a puzzle for you to do if you're in that age bracket, um, because I know you multitask, and listening to a sermon is quite boring. So take one of those, and you can listen as well, but anybody else? Anybody older? 20 to 30? <laughs> there you go. Pass those along. If you find anybody else want one? Go ahead. Anybody else? They'll be up here at the front. Here you go. Take those. Um, those are Gandhi idioms and the English word, and you need to try and match them up. So, for example, the um, I think it's the cowbell, cowbell something one, cowbell talking one is a chatterbox, right? He's always going on and on and on. Okay. Um, well, it's lovely to be back here. I'm sorry that I only came alone without the tribe and the transit van, but. Um, It's really a privilege to be back here in Crawley, and uh, thank you, David and Linda, for hosting me and for arranging this time to share with you. Um, A lot has been happening in the last four years, and I'm not going to be able to talk about all of that, but I'll try and intersperse in this talk some of the things that have been happening in our neck of the woods, and trust that that will be an encouragement to you, but also a challenge to you. You've got a wonderful website here at this church and sitting there in India, I could download your sermons, look at your photos, remember who's here, and uh, whoever put that together, you've done a really great job. You've also got a wonderful team of teachers and preachers here. And I was listening to some of those sermons on the flight as I came over to catch up with what you've been doing in this series. And that's technology, it's it's great. And um, I particularly enjoyed the story of Johnny the Bagger at the supermarket. You, You all relate to that one. And you know just how God can take somebody and give them a new purpose and have such a huge impact on those around him. He did, despite all those limitations that he had. And uh, I think that's that's part of my story too. Um, I used to be one of those guys who sits up the back there, quietly, out of the limelight. But God got hold of me and changed me, and uh, He's doing great things through us and our family in India. So before we look at the passage today, I want to give you a quick update on some of those things. So if we, um, this is our family photo, go to the the next one, in case you don't recognize us. That was the grandparents over there on on the right. But this is us, okay, there's a lot of us. And uh, if you want to actually see what we look like, we go to the next photo, and that was what we looked like four years ago. Unfortunately, our family is still growing. And if we go to the next one, you'll notice there's one extra person there, but this time it's growing at the top end of the family. We're welcoming a new son-in-law into the family in January, as Abby, our daughter... See, you got voice-activated clicker here, this is great. Um, <laughs> Abby gets engaged to Isaac in January, and they get married in New Zealand. So the team that we work with, this is what they looked like last time Uh, You came, you probably saw this picture. You don't remember them. Ramesh and Dhurnath and their families, if we click there, this is amazing. Um, This is what the team looks like now. So there's lots of changes there. We actually work with a um, cluster of nine different translation teams in central India. And this is one of the celebration events that we got together where they were celebrating producing God's word in different languages. And they're all very happy there. One of the things that's changed is we used to get together two or three times a year for workshops, training, all sorts of things, prayer, um, now a lot of what happens, we do stuff online together. Google has made a huge difference to our lives, so instead of going away for a two-week workshop and leaving the family and all the rest of it, we're sitting in our own offices and our own places and our own homes, working online collaboratively together, and that's an amazing thing. One of the people um, here on the left is Minnie. She's a translation consultant. She understands Greek and Hebrew and helps us check the materials that we produce. They're a lovely couple there. This is our monthly meeting where we get together and talk about things. Now, Minnie is very qualified and she could read this Greek from Paul and probably understand it too. I'm not that good, so let's do it in English. Okay, dear friends, You always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I'm away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people hold firmly to the word of life. Then, on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just as your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice and I will share your joy. The analytical types among you one more, yep, yeah, will be already be looking for structure and patterns in this passage. And if you're one of them, then maybe Wycliffe has a job for you. Um, Paul, as he writes to the Philippian church, this fledgling church in Philippi has an excellent way of challenging, encouraging and empowering them. And this is where we're going to dive into this passage this morning. What he's saying is, don't give up doing what you were doing so well while I was with you. Some people only seem to work hard when somebody's watching them, when somebody's standing over them with a, with a stick saying, come on, keep going. But as soon as they're on their own, they put their feet up and they relax. We had a worker like that on our team and I had to fire him because he would only work when he was being watched. And I'm thinking, you need to understand that God is watching you all the time and you need to work with your full heart and your full passion, whether I'm here or not. Paul is saying, keep on doing what you did so well, even when no one's watching. That's what I call obedience and integrity. What do you do with your time when nobody's watching? What do you do when you're completely alone and you don't know anybody around you? We have this thing here, the results of your salvation. And if we look at what does that really mean, in Gandhi we had to say, keep on doing those kinds of deeds that people who are saved do. That's what it means about show the results. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. That's how we had to translate that. So we don't work hard in order to be saved. That's the myth that most of the the other religions say. You've got to work hard in order to be saved. We work hard because we are saved. And there's a huge difference between those two. Reverence and fear is something else that we don't see very much these days in our churches, do we? We have this picture of God as a loving, caring, gracious, forgiving God. But sometimes we forget that he's also the awe-inspiring creator of the universe who's absolutely intolerant to sin and evil. We focus so much on God's grace that we almost forget that his wrath is also very real. And it's hard to get that balance. But we don't want to be at this extreme or that extreme. We want to remember who God really is. So Paul goes on to encourage them. We see something very important in this next verse. It's not about us, it's all about God. He is the one who's giving us the desire and then also giving us the power to do what pleases him. It's not always what pleases us, it's to do what pleases him. Remember when Jesus was commissioning the disciples. They were all excited to go out again. They'd already had a taste of what it was like to minister in his name. And he says, don't go anywhere. Don't even leave Jerusalem until what? Until the Father sends you the gift he promised. Only when the Holy Spirit comes and fills them with power will they have what it takes to do the things that Jesus commanded them to do. So here we see very clearly God not only gives us the desire to serve him, he also gives us the power to serve him. So be encouraged that God never asks us to do something without also empowering us to do what he has called us to do. Paul is also trying to empower the church there and said, okay, here are some things. How how do we do this? How do we do this? He's laying down some principles to follow and carrying out the new responsibilities that he's giving them. I can see three points here. The first one is do everything without complaining or arguing. It's all about the right attitude. The next one we see Um, Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. I couldn't get something right, but bright was close enough. Bright lights, okay? So right attitude, bright lights, and finally, the right foundation. Hold firmly to the word of life, who is Jesus. Jesus. So let's dig in with the, the first point there, the right attitude. It's so easy to have the right attitude when we're doing what we want to do. Am I right? It's easy. But what happens to our attitude when we're told to do something that we either don't want to do or possibly don't agree with? And what's the attitude to those who are in authority over us at those times? What's it like when it's clear that they're wrong? How do we respond? And this doesn't just affect us little kids and teenagers, it affects us as adults. And the implications of what happens as adults is far more serious than when we're teenagers. Being sent to your room for five minutes is different from being disciplined at work or fired. I don't know how how many of you have teenagers. Some of you have nodding. Ian, I forget which Ian it was, but one of the Ians was talking about their attitude in one of the previous sermons, and I totally agree. Um, right now we only have one, but there'll be a season when we'll have about four teenagers at once. And if I have any hair left, it'll be gone by then. We've heard of the um, the baby boomers. Some of you are baby boomers. Then we had Generation X think I'm part of Generation X, and then we have Generation Y, very aptly named. They spelt it wrong, but Generation Y, Y, everything is Y. And uh, because I said so isn't enough anymore for our teenagers, is it? They need to know why, <laughs> and it just goes on and on. It's easy to judge them, but when we actually pause for a minute and think about it, we're more like them than we want to admit. We're low on trust when it comes to listening to God sometimes, and we're high on inquisitiveness. We want to know why before we obey, and God wants us to obey before we want to know, before we need to know why. There's a serious offence, actually. This is questioning God, and um, or even questioning those who He has put in authority over us. It is an offence. What happened in the wilderness to the Israelites after all those miracles that God did to get them out of Egypt and towards the promised land? What happened? Let's listen to their voices here. Their voices rose, I think we've got another, there we go. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron, who God had appointed. If only we had died in Egypt or even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones would be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? I just realized I hadn't had my glasses on. No wonder I couldn't read. Here we go. This reminds me of a year ago, actually, when our family were living in the hot, dusty, polluted plains of central India. And we moved up into the cool, green, beautiful mountains of South India. But after a couple of weeks of us being there, our kids began to murmur, to grumble to regret the move. You know, it wasn't that hot back in Montreal, they would say. I'm thinking, yeah, right, all year round, it's above 30 degrees. In the summer, it goes up to 45, and it's not that hot, they say. Get real. At least we could play on the roof. Here's a picture of the roof. Look at the view. one side, there's a building coming up, literally a meter away from our house, so there's nothing, blank wall. And on the other side, you know, big mess and more buildings and nothing else. And then they would say, well at least we had friends back in Montreal, and I'm thinking, yeah, you had two of them. Now you've got a whole school full of them. I mean, why, do, why does the human heart always look backwards with a longing to be, for things to be like they were, no matter how bad they really were? Somebody said, Nostal- nostalgia's not like it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> this is the view that we now enjoy looking out of our kitchen window from our home in Uti, there's uh, carrots in the, in the organic farm right next door to us and there's hills behind and usually a nice glorious blue sky, lovely weather, ten, 20 degrees temperature. and it's like, it's like heaven for us, but our kids are still complaining. What is it? Even in the New Testament, we see when the angel came and visited Zechariah with a message specifically from God, what does he say? How can I be sure? And boy, he pays a heavy penalty for that question, doubting God. So let's, do everything without complaining or arguing, and why? So that no one can criticize you. People are watching us, and we don't want them to, as we say in Gandhi, to point the finger. Okay, we don't have a word for criticize, so there's an answer for somebody who's doing that. Criticize is point the finger. A few weeks ago, Ian Larkham challenged us with this quote, do we grow in Christ, or do we grumble and gossip? How are we going on that front? Somebody told me, how do you know when a plane is full of palms?" I can say this, I'm kind of half English, half German, half Indian, and half New Zealand, so I can make jokes about any of those. Um, You know, when the the plane docks at the the airport there and the pilot turns the um, turbines off, you can still hear the whining. (laughs) No, it's just one of those things. But we need to obey willingly and joyfully, not grudgingly and grumpily. Let's go on to the next thing. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. You all know that chorus, right, from Sunday school. Well, I always thought of a flickering candle and trying to keep that candle from from going out. But I wonder if Paul had another image in his mind as he dictated those words to his scribe. Perhaps he was thinking of a full moon lighting up the dark paths that he often trod. When we translated this passage into Gandhi, I suggested something like shining like stars, because a lot of English translations use that. But a Gandhi translator commented that stars don't seem to give, up, give much light at all. Alright, forget that idea. Maybe Paul was thinking something more like a lighthouse set on a hill and sending out a strong penetrating light as a warning to those around of impending danger. I know some of you are thinking, but they weren't lighthouses in those days. You're right. And that's a trap that you can very easily fall into when you're translating is to put a concept that exists today that didn't exist when Paul was writing. Right? And that's a trap you've got to avoid. Okay? Maybe he had something even brighter in mind. It's interesting that it's the same root word in the Greek used here as Paul used to describe the blindingly bright night light at noon that knocked him off his horse on the way to Damascus. It's the same word used in this passage. In any case, I'm not sure what Paul was thinking about, but let's put away that flickering candle in the darkness image. That's not what Paul was talking about here. But as we do that, let's also remember, never forget, that even the smallest amount of light dispels the darkness. John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Hudson Taylor made this very profound statement, I have but one candle of life to burn, and would rather burn it out where people are dying in darkness than in a land that is flooded with light. That's a very strong, sorry, we need one more. It's a very strong statement that Hudson Taylor made. These days, I'm not sure which lands are flooded with light. When he made this statement, it was very clear. But these days, there's more light in other parts of the world than there is here in Britain, at least. The nations have come to you, He also went on to say, I look upon foreign missionaries as the scaffolding around a rising building. The sooner it can be dispensed with, the better. Or rather, the sooner it can be transferred to other places to serve the same temporary use, the better. So for 15 years, we've been a candle burning out in the dark place in central India. We've journeyed with and served alongside a handful of gaunt believers to translate God's word for them in their own language so that they and those in their tribe who have not yet heard can respond to the greatest message ever told. Whether you realize it or not, you're also in the work of Bible translation. You've been translating God's word. Yes, for the people around you. They may never pick up a Bible and read it, but be sure they are reading you and your actions just as intently as someone reads a book. How is your translation going? Are you faithfully representing the original, who is Christ? That's a challenge for you to think about this week. How are you reflecting Christ in your workplace, in your school, in your college? Several years ago, after we had just published the Gospel of Mark, and what we would do is after each Gospel, we would actually just put out a Gospel like that and get that out into the hands of people. You can pass these around. Um, Last week, we sent off the PDF of this to the Bible Society, which is the whole New Testament. It'll be thinner than this when it's on thinner paper, but have a read if you want. (laughs) Pass that around, and here's a nice comic. Here's the Gospel of Matthew, but this is what the Gospel of Mark looked like a few years ago. and We gave it to one of the pastors and he said, um, why, why do we need this? I mean, we understand Telugu, we all read Telugu, that's a regional language, so um, why do we need this? And I was so discouraged, all that work, all that checking, everything to get it right, and then the pastor's not even convinced that they need it. Well, we plodded on anyway. And a few years later, when we translated the Gospel of John, that same pastor came back to me absolutely beaming in his face, holding that book. And he says, I have read John's Gospel in Telugu so many times, and I get some meaning. But now I've just read through John once in Gandhi, and I understand what it's all about. I thought, thank you, Lord, thank you. I mean, anybody else could have come and said that to me and I'd have thought nothing of it. But this same pastor who had challenged us even why we're doing translation was now on fire. And he has become an ambassador for the Gandhi scriptures and now plays an important role on the Translation Impact Committee. His enthusiasm is contagious. And we've watched the rest of the small group of pastors also get excited about having the scripture in their own languages. One of the last things they said when we left in August was we can't wait another 10 or 15 years for the Old Testament. We want it sooner than that. We want the whole Bible. Tell us, what can we do to make, help make that happen? Ironically, in the words of Hudson Taylor, part of the answer is to remove the scaffolding. So we are moving on. Um, This person at the back there, Ramesh, is now leading the team. He's extremely capable. We'll still be engaged, but from a distance, and more as a coaching and consulting role. We're no longer the ones who are driving the project. We're moving on to help other teams. The scaffolding is being moved on to help others. Over the next 12 to 18 months, in India alone, there will be 20 New Testaments coming through the process and reaching the hands of the people. That's an exciting thing to happen, especially considering it usually takes between 15 and 40 years to do one, depending on how you work. Okay, for us, it's taken about nine years to get to this point. Um, So we've worked fast, but there's a long way to go will be part of that effort to get those people finishing their New Testaments published and into the hands of people. You might remember us sharing some technological breakthroughs last time we visited you. I was so excited to um, talk about how we could put so much content in Gandhi on these little memory chips and hand them out to people. We had scripture, we had songs, testimonies, three full-length movies on there, the Jesus film, Android apps. We had all sorts of great stuff, and it was good, all in Gandhi but technology moved so fast. What we were doing was good, it was great, but it was all about what we did. We had to make the content, we had to pay for the chips, we had to duplicate them, we had to figure out how to distribute them, we had to follow them up. As the nursery rhyme goes, it was we, 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 all the way home. <laughs> so what changed? A brand new mobile phone company. Yeah, so it was push, push, push. A brand new mobile phone company arrived in India and turned the the internet market upside down. For two quid a month, people could download two gigabytes of data every day. Now here in the UK, you probably pay two two quid a day to get two gigs a month. It's probably the other way around. But the point was suddenly people had access to the internet at a very affordable price. And so now, there was no need to push. People began to pull. All that we have to do now is create the content and put it online, and they are finding it by themselves. They are pulling. And what's fascinating is, looking at the Google stats, people in the Middle East, GONs, they must be migrant laborers or something, they're downloading our apps in the Middle East and reading those in Gondi. So um, that was fascinating. We didn't know that there were other GONs outside of the little district that we worked in, but there's obviously people who work elsewhere. God is able to do immeasurably more than we can think or imagine. And there's an important message in that for us too. When our lives shine brightly, as Paul was talking about in the previous verses, people will be attracted to Jesus. People will come to us and say, why are you so different? There's something different about you. Everybody else at work is like this, but there's something different. And they're going to start asking the questions. They're doing the pulling. We're not necessarily having to do the push. They will come looking for us. When we live lives that are clean, innocent, shining like bright lights in the world, then there's a lot less need to push the gospel. People will pull. I want whatever it is that you have. I don't know what it is, but I know that I want it. And let's make sure that when that happens, we're ready. If someone asks about our faith, about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it, but do this in a gentle and respectful way. I doubt there's a need to convince you that we're living in a crooked and perverse generation. We're surrounded by darkness, that's for sure. But just in case you're tempted to think that this is something new, go home and have a read of Genesis chapter six when God, having created the world, looks at the world and regrets ever having made humankind and he then sends the flood. Or look at Romans chapter one, where Paul describes the depraved human society of his time. There's nothing new under the sun. Paul's last point of how is in this list of how to obey God with deep reverence and fear is all about the right foundation. Now, I may skip over this, but everyone knows for a house to stand firm, you need a solid foundation. It's a lot of work to lay a good foundation. And once it's laid, you don't even see it. It's just there, it's kind of underground. But without it, the building won't stand for long. Paul alludes to this in other passages. He himself laid the foundation of God's house in so many towns and cities across Asia Minor. In verse 16 he says, hold firmly to the word of life. Now what is the word of life? Is it this book that we carry? No, it's Jesus. Jesus is the word of life. Christ himself is the word, God's fullest revelation to mankind. And he is eternal life. And he came to bring eternal life to, pe- to people. The words he spoke were also life, and his gospel produces spiritual life. Jesus is the word of life. He is the foundation on on whom our lives are built. Christianity in the Bible itself is under constant attack from those who wish to discredit what we believe. Are you standing strong? Are you holding firmly to the word of life? Last night I was sharing with the Moldens about this professor that I traveled on the plane with the previous trip, and he had answers for everything. I mean, he was having me for breakfast in terms of me trying to witness to him. He was an atheist, confirmed atheist, and and his job was trying to convince me to become an atheist. And I was working the other way, and it wasn't going very well. But I actually shared with him um, some things from, and this is part of his thing, how can you trust such an ancient book? You know, it was written by some clever people long ago, but you you, you can't base your life on that. It's all just made up. So I said, well, what about these stones in Revelation? The 12 stones in Revelation are all of a particular type, isotopic or non-isotopic. I forget what it is. But when you shine pure light, well, pure light, what do you mean? A laser. When you shine a laser into these stones, they exhibit certain properties. And other stones, like diamonds and the common ones that we talk about, don't exhibit these properties. But every one of these 12 stones, I think if we zoom in, every one of these 12 stones is of the one particular type. And I said to this professor, who was a maths and statistics guy, I said, How do you explain that? What's the chance of getting just those 12 stones, all of that same type? God inspired his word. God knew what he was doing. This, this thing about these stones is only in our generation that we've even realized that this is the case. It, they didn't know this 2,000 years ago or even 200 years ago. He said, okay, I'll have to think about that one. Good. Scored one. Um, I wanna come back to that statement from the pastors about wanting the whole Bible sooner than later. It's a noble desire. They want their congregations to be able to access the whole of God's word, not just the New Testament. There's some well-meaning groups engaged in translation work who claim that in two years, they can translate the whole Bible for people. I'm scratching my head thinking, yeah, normally it takes 15 years for the New Testament, two years for the whole Bible. Actually, I said to them, no, that's too slow. Google can do it for you in two minutes. But do we really want to go there? Just think of how that automated automated fast food approach to translation might actually rob the local church. It robs them of the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to engage. Sorry, we're going to go through that. I'm going to skip that one as well. Sorry, Justin, I'm making you work too hard. Okay, here we go. It robs them of a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to engage deeply with God's word as they grapple with how best to convey the original meaning to their people. Think about it. They're the ones who will eventually know God's word inside out and will be the pillars of the church. They're the ones who will help defend God's word and prevent false doctrines. They're the ones who are already willing to stake their lives on the truths in God's word and shine as bright lights in their community. Because they don't just believe it in their minds like we do often. They believe it with their hearts and they live it out daily. They're the ones who own the text because they themselves help translate it and check it. This ownership is part of the whole translation process. Um, I'm working with a team I'm running out of time. I'm working with a team in India where a translator came from Australia, did the work in the mid-'80s, printed it, and those tr- New Testaments are sitting in boxes on shelves. 20 years later. But suddenly the church woke up and found out that they were there and said, hey, we want this. And now they're revising it. And in the next three months, that New Testament will also go to press. And this time it's the church saying, we want it. They're doing the pulling, we're not doing the pushing. That's exciting to be part of that trustworthy they know that the scriptures are trustworthy because they've worked on them it may appear to be a painfully slow process to translate word by word phrase by phrase sentence by sentence paragraph by paragraph chapter by chapter book by book first the new testament then the old testament but it's worth it building such a trustworthy foundation takes time but it's worth it we take for granted all the english translations that we have don't we We forget the pains that John Wycliffe and others went through and uh, Tyndale and a whole bunch of people went through to get the Bible to us in the common language. We forget that, but we need to hold firmly to the word of life, Jesus, that the scriptures talk about. So why is Paul saying all this to the Philippian believers? He doesn't want his efforts to be wasted. Imagine digging those trenches, carefully laying the foundation stones, but then never actually building the rest of the house. It's kind of pointless, isn't it? It's sad, but in the villages, we see a lot of houses like that. It's because the government pays them to build a house, but it's done one stage at a time. And sometimes they only fund them up to the foundations, and then it just sits there. It's tragic. Paul says, then, in the future, one day, on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. I'd love to share a story about Durgesh, a painter who came to paint for us. I don't have time, but he basically said at the end of some of our conversations together, you know, we work hard every day, we earn money, but what can we do with all this money? We have to keep working. We don't even have the time to spend it. It's all useless. We can't take it with us when we die. So what's the point? And I was able to talk with him a few things in Hindi and share with him, but the best thing I could do was open my Hindi Bible as an app and say, share this through WhatsApp, send it to Durgesh, and he gets a Hindi audio Bible on his phone. And I pray and trust that God will be able to use that as another link in the chain in his life so that he finds freedom in Christ too and purpose for life. Um, I can't remember where we're at here. Let's skip that one. Here's something. If you're shy about talking to people like I was, and still am to a certain degree, there's two questions you can ask them which really make things easy. One, where are you from? Everybody wants to know that, right? The second question usually is, what do you do? But forget that one, okay? Go to where you're going. And they go, what do you mean where you're going? Well, not today or tomorrow, but where are you going when you die? And you see, I start with this because I can... I can tell them where I'm going, but I haven't got a clue where I'm from. I'm half English, half German, half this, born here, born there. So I tell them, look, you know where you're from, but you don't know where you're going. I haven't got a clue where I'm from, but I do know where I'm going. And you can have that certainty too. It's a great way to open a conversation with people. And what's the point? That was Durgesh's thing. What's the point? What's the point of life? Start getting people to think about eternity, as a couple of people in Sydney are famously known to do. None of us want to waste our lives. We all want our lives to count for something. We want to be able to say, as Paul did, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have remained faithful. We also want to hear the words of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. All of us want that, all right? Do you have that deep sense of satisfaction that only God can give you, of being at the center of his will, being the person that he created you to be? That's important first and then doing the things that, he, that only you can do for him. Did you realize you're not one in a million? You're not even one in a million, billion. You're one in more than eight billion. You're absolutely unique. And God has put you on this planet for a purpose. And your job in this lifetime is to figure out what that purpose is and do it. Then you get this well-done, good and faithful servant. Start living a life that's fulfilled. Now, we've run out of time to talk about... Um, those last few verses about Paul rejoicing even if he dies. But maybe that's a great topic for your um, home group this week. Look at those last few verses. I think it's 17 and 18. I say, well, what, what is Paul really saying here? So Paul has challenged the Philippian church. He's encouraged them. He's empowered them. And um, we can grow from this too. Let's also joyfully obey God in the same way. Go out into this week determined to fulfill your God-given responsibilities. Be a bright shining light, not just a little candle flickering in the wind. Do all these things not in your own strength, but through God's power working in you. And that power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power working in you. Goodness gracious me, we should be turning the world upside down. And we are, but it's one person at a time person by person. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that we've been able to share together. Thank you for what you're doing in each one of our lives. Thank you that you've made each one of us as a unique being to serve your purposes here on earth, to bring your kingdom here on earth. Lord, some of us need you to just give us the desire to reach out to others, to see others saved. Others of us have the desire, Father, but we're trying to do things in our own strength and we need to stop and say, Lord, give us your power to do your work. All of us, Father, could do with a good dose of joy from you to be obedient in all the things that you've called us to do and to do so joyfully. So, Lord, help us. Help us to shine brightly in the places that you've put us. Help us to be the links in the chain for people to find you. Help us to make each day of our lives count for your kingdom. Thank you for being here with us this morning by your Spirit, for hearing our heart's desires, and for answering our prayers through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.